Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to pick up with our um, regular, regularly scheduled exposition that we skipped last week. Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading in verse 9 today. We're still following Jesus. So it says, He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is God's Word. So two weeks ago, we watched as Jesus answers a, uh, a question, a challenge, an opposition from the Pharisees concerning His actions on a Sabbath day. And we, as we watch how Jesus dealt with that opposition and how He responded, we learned a couple things. First and foremost, we learned that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But we also learn just a little bit about the Sabbath itself, what it means and, and, and how we are to think about it. We're going to do a little bit more of that today. And we also learned a little bit about how Jesus Himself interpreted the Sabbath command from God. And so in these stories, uh, verses 1-8, through 8, and then today verses 9-14, through 14, we're seeing little excerpts from the life of our Lord concerning the Sabbath. And we see that He saw the Sabbath as very important. It wasn't something that he said, oh, you know, just forget about that. He, he saw it as a very important thing. Although, his interpretation of the Sabbath was very different than the uh, interpretation of the religious leaders of his day. Remember, they were very legalistic, and they had created laws and added to the Sabbath command. And so what we're seeing, we saw that two weeks ago, we're going to see today this this main theme that legalism stands diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ and the gospel. I'll say it again. Legalism. This idea that I can be good, I can do good things, do more good things than bad things, and I stand before God someday and He's, he's going to say, hey, you were good, and so I'll let you into, my, in, into heaven. That idea is directly opposed to the gospel. Directly opposed to what Jesus came and did for us. And so we're seeing Jesus wrestle with these ideas of legalism versus truth and and the gospel. And this idea that we might be able to earn our way to God is in opposition to the gospel. Now we, we can think of people like sweet old ladies that we see they're just so nice and so kind and we think, how could God send that person to hell. They're so good and so nice. But if they've not come to a place of repentance and faith, they will spend eternity under the wrath of God. It doesn't matter how good we are. It's not about being good. And so Jesus is is taking this pharisaical idea that they can 
earn God's favor. And he's pointing them to the truth or he's, he's challenging them. And as soon as our minds are permeated with this idea that I can be good because I'm good, God loves me, we, we stand in opposition to Jesus. There's a battle line drawn. He's on one side and we are on the other. Because He comes, He came, and through His work, His life and His death, His resurrection, His ascension, through all that, He said, it is finished. The work is done. So imagine us coming along and saying, yeah, the work is finished, but I think I can do more. They don't work. It doesn't work together. And so we, we're seeing these stories as the Pharisees oppose Jesus, but we have to understand that if this is our mindset, we too oppose Jesus. That's what we're looking at, and that's kind of where we're going today. Um, look at verse 9, and we'll, we'll move into this passage. And we read, He, that's Jesus, went on from there and entered their synagogue. And when it says there, I think we can assume that the, the third party here, there's Jesus and His disciples, and then the there is the Pharisees, the religious Jewish people of the day who kind of ran the synagogue and, and were the leaders there. It was considered their synagogue because it was their meeting place. He enters into their synagogue, and Luke tells us that this is not actually the same day. It's actually on a different Sabbath. So he goes on from there, and he goes into their synagogue, and this is on a Sabbath day because this is when the Jews gathered for worship. Now, I told you two weeks ago that we were going to look and kind of get a, a historical idea of what the Sabbath would have meant to a Jewish person of Jesus' day. So we go all the way back to creation, like we did two weeks ago, Genesis 1, God creates everything in six days, and then He rests on the seventh day. That's where the Sabbath ordinance comes from. It is a creation ordinance, just like what constitutes a marriage. One man and one woman, just because God created that order. And the Sabbath is the same. So it's a creation ordinance. We've seen that from Genesis 1. Now usually, we jump from Genesis 1 to Exodus 20. We say, here's when the commandment was given. But I want to read you something. It'll be up here from Exodus chapter 16, before the giving of the law. In verse 22, it says, on the sixth day, this is when God rained down manna from heaven. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over may lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it but on the seventh day which is the Sabbath there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse, listen to this, to keep my commandments and my laws. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, He gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. <clears throat> Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. 
the people rested on the seventh day. So that was before the giving of the law. Because it was a creation ordinance. People were new, they knew or they should have known based on the conscience God had given them and, and how things were ordered that you rest on the seventh day. We read in the New Testament, Paul in Romans is talking about the law. He's talking about Gentiles who were not given the law, have the law written on their hearts, their conscience. These moral laws, the Ten Commandments, they are a revelation of the character of God and we should, should all understand right from wrong based on the moral law. Of course, Paul says that we suppress that truth in our unrighteousness, but we should know the law. Then in Exodus 20, the law is given, the Ten Commandments. In Numbers 15, verse 32, there's a story of a man who's gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And they grabbed him and they took him to Moses and they say, it was kind of unclear what we're supposed to do here. What do you think we should do? Moses says, take him out and stone him to death for working on the Sabbath. So we see that the Sabbath was upheld at that point. Fast forward 700 years approximately and listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So by the time Isaiah comes along, and even before that, you can see, they've moved into legalism. They've moved into, we can remain in sin, we can keep our iniquity, but as long as we're observing these solemn assemblies, we're okay. And God says, no, it's making me sick because you think that you can live how you want to and just do the motions and it's good. Fast forward another approximately 100 years and Jeremiah is prophesying. <clears throat> and he says, Thus says the Lord to me, or thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. That is in the Ten Commandments. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. So there, by the time Jeremiah comes along, they've moved into antinomianism. No longer, they're not even trying to observe the Sabbath anymore. They're just doing whatever they want. We see the same thing when Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the wall. They get everything built, and it's not long before people are carrying on their lives like normal on the Sabbath day, and they have to be reprimanded. So Israel is back and forth concerning the Sabbath. Just like us. We're the same way. We, we, you grew up like me and it was like, you know, the Sabbath was, was important and then you kind of, it, it came, the, the, these waves of teaching come through. It's like, no, we've got to get rid of, 
the law, we're under grace now, and so now it doesn't matter what you do, and so then anything goes, and then it comes again another way where people are getting back to the law and they're saying, no, we've got to keep it. It's, it's back and forth, back and forth. We're the same way as Israel was. And what's interesting is when you read through the Old Testament, especially if you were to finish out that section in Jeremiah 17, God promises blessing and curse that hinges on their observance of the Sabbath. Do it and live. Disobey and be punished. So when we we learn this, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why was the Sabbath so telling of their spiritual health? Why Why was the Sabbath so important? Well, let's talk about the Ten Commandments for a minute. The Ten Commandments are broken up, and we've talked about this, but this is just uh, to jog your memory. The Ten Commandments can be broken down into what they would have called the two tables of the law. You've got the first table, Commandments 1 through 4. And those were concerning our relationship to God, how we worship God. You worship one God, you worship the one God he, the way He says you're supposed to worship, you don't take His name in vain, and you keep the Sabbath day holy. <clears throat> table 2 was commandments 5 through 10, and those commandments were concerning our relationship to other people. So you got table 1, love God, honor God. Table 2, love people, treat people rightly. And Jesus sums this up perfectly in Matthew chapter 22. Listen to this. You guys will know this. This is what we call the great commandment passage. And one of them, a lawyer, that is a professor, professional in the law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment? Like, what is number one? The great commandment in the law. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In other words... Table one, first four commandments. This is the great and first commandment. And then he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Table two, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus says is the greatest commandment is basically commandments one through four followed very closely with commandments five through ten. They're all together as a whole. It's it's the law, not the laws. The law of God. So Jesus sums all of table one, all of the first four commandments concerning our relationship to God up in one commandment. To love God with all that you are. And so, to fail at one of those four is to break the first table of the law. So the Sabbath is a command that concerns our relationship with God and how we worship Him. It is the same as you will worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. There's only one God. Taking the name of the Lord in vain, or or worshiping God through through pictures and images, graven things that we've made, even in our own minds. They all go together. And how we worship God and how we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so, the Sabbath comes as a commandment or a gift. And here's the problem, and I explained this two weeks ago. Just think about this. Think through the logic. God gives us a gift, a command, and the command is literally rest. That is literally the commandment. Rest and worship me. Just one day in seven, take a break from the work that you complain about all the time, 
and worship me one day in seven. And they couldn't do it. They, they couldn't take their, their focus off of themselves for one day. And I say they, but it's us. That's what we do. One day, God has said, I'll give you one day where you don't even have to worry about your earthly labors. Just rest and worship. I've created you to worship me. You will get the greatest joy in the universe when you focus on me and not yourself. So take a break and do the very thing that you were created to do. And we say, oh, I don't know if I can do that or not. We, we, we are immediately drawn back into our earthly labors, our earthly focuses. And so, because of this roller coaster, up and down, back and forth, the Sabbath becomes this really hot button issue with the Pharisees. And they take it, like I said last week, they create, or two weeks ago, they create these 39 different categories of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, which is exactly what we do. We ask, what can I do on the Sabbath? And then so we won all these distinctions, and so they had done the same thing, and they took this gift from God, and they made it into a curse. So it is on another Sabbath that Jesus goes into their synagogue. Remember, the synagogue is the Jewish house of worship. I was explaining the case yesterday. It's basically like their church building. So the Jews would go to church, and Jesus is with them in their house of worship. Now, to contrast Jesus in the field with His disciples, now we're in a public place where there would have been many Jewish people there to, to watch what takes place and to watch this exchange. There's regular Jewish people, there's Jewish leaders. And this was Jesus' habit. When you read through the Gospels, He wasn't the type of guy that said, man, I'm under grace, I'm going to take a lazy day, or I'm going to take a break, I'm not going to... No, He was there on the Sabbath. He would go in to worship. and to... He was often teaching and reading from the, the Old Testament. And so Jesus enters into the synagogue and usually... Almost every time this happens, we see a confrontation because truth confronts dead religious observance. This dead religion that the, the Jews were caught up in. Not religion, dead religion. There is a good and undefiled religion before God and then there's also dead religion. And the Jews were caught up in dead religion. In Mark chapter 1, remember, Jesus goes to the synagogue and while He's there, there's a man possessed by a demon. In church, in other words. And this is what happens when Jesus shows up. There's these confrontations. Remember the man spoke out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? In other words, we don't need to be around one another. The demons were at church. And they asked Jesus what He was doing there. So there's this, these worlds collide because truth, the God of the universe, comes in to collide with the demons of Satan. And they say, we know who you are. The Holy One of God. And Jesus says, stop talking. I'm preaching. You don't talk when I'm talking. There's this collision that often, almost always happens when Jesus is in the synagogue. And the same, very same thing can and should happen with us. Oftentimes, we feel like this is a place where we can come and we can rest in a dead religion. And the goal is that the Word is preached and God confronts dead religion. They, they cannot exist together. And so He will confront those. And so, today, will your dead religion be confronted or will you hold on to it? Will you keep
keep it concealed. Jesus can't let it go. And there's always this confrontation anywhere Jesus goes. So He's in the synagogue on a very important, very crucial, very touchy day of the week for the Jews in verse 9. And in verse 10, we move into the specific opposition here. It says, And a man was there with a withered hand. Now we'll stop right there. Paint this picture. There's a man. The word, when it says withered hand, that, that same language is used elsewhere when it talks about the, the grass withers, um, plants drying up and dying when the leaves fall off the trees. So we got this guy whose hand, the, and as far as we can tell, the, the fluids of his hand have dried up and his hand is shriveled and unable to be used. I picture the dried out peppers that hang in an Italian restaurant or something. You know, they're just hanging there for decorations. Dried up, shriveled, unable to be used. And Luke, when you read his gospel, Luke is a physician, so he gets into details, and he says it was his right hand. The majority of people are right-handed. When there's a left-handed person in Scripture, it usually makes a point to tell us. Here it makes a point to tell us in Luke that this was his right hand. This would have been his, his main working hand. The hand he ate with, the hand he wrote with, the hand he would shake another man's hand with. His main working hand. And so we have this man who more than likely, because of this withered hand, is unable to work like he would want. This was during a time period when men still realized that their job was to work. And so, he was unable to work. More than likely, unable to provide for his family just like he, he wanted to in, in the best possible way. Probably wouldn't have been very good with, with driving an ox or pulling a plow or, or working a garden or, or a blacksmith. He, he wouldn't have been good at any of those things because he only had one hand. And so we've got this man more than likely looked down on because of his infirmity. He can't take care of his family. Unable to give the right hand of fellowship and worship. Probably separated out from the crowd. And he's here at the synagogue on this day. Now we don't know if the Pharisees got him to come for this particular event, or if he was just there to worship. But he's there, and it says, they asked him, this is the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, why would they have gone to Jesus to ask this question? Other than the fact that they wanted to accuse him, they already knew his history. They knew the, the, the word around town. They knew what he had been doing. They knew that he had been teaching and his teaching was different than theirs. He had been performing miracles and, and people had began to follow him. And so they go to Jesus to ask him this question, is it lawful? Again, this is exactly what we do. We read the commandment about the Sabbath and we say, okay, well, what can I do? You, got, you tell me I have to rest. Okay, I get I have to rest, but what can I get by with? What's the, the most I can do on this day to focus on myself and, and still be within the bounds of the law? And that shows that we've taken the law and we've walked around the backside of it and we're looking at it from the wrong perspective. The question should not be, what can I do? The question should be, why would I do anything else? When God has given me this day to worship and to rest, why would I go back to my worldly labors on this day, but they ask the same question because they're looking from the wrong perspective. Is it lawful? Now we have to remember that the Pharisees had added to the law concerning the Sabbath. Now remember, there was no specific command about healing on the Sabbath. 
If you read the, the commandment that God gave, it doesn't say anything about healing. But the Pharisees had created laws, and for the most part, their rule was this. If it's a life or death situation, they can be healed. If it's not life or death, then just let it wait. But listen to some of these things that were written down in their law. This is quite timely. If a man had an ailment in his throat, he might not gargle with oil, but he might swallow a large quantity of oil, and if he was healed, he was healed. So we might say warm salt water. You know, don't, you can't gargle it because that's work, but you can drink a bunch of it real fast, and maybe that'll help. See, their, their, their idea was you can't work, but if you were un, unintentionally healed, it's okay. So it can't be an intentional healing. Here's another one. One that was bit by a mad dog, they might give him hog's liver. Or one with an ailment in the mouth might put spice to it. Again, these have no medicinal value. They're kind of like what we would say old wives' tales, you know, these, these home remedies that everybody's like, you know, that doesn't work, but they still do it. The idea was you can try this, but you can't be intentional about healing. You just have to try these things that they're really more hopeful than anything. And so their question, based on all this in their minds, is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They didn't give any specifics. They just said, is it lawful to heal? In some cases, it was. In some cases, it wasn't. But they didn't give specifics. They just asked, is it lawful to heal? So, so think, if Jesus says no, then he comes across as you know, unloving towards this man. He comes across as weak because he can't do anything. If he says yes, then in their minds, he, he begins to border breaking their own man-made laws. And so they're trying to, to catch him in a trap. Pretty much either way he goes, they can come at him and say, see, you've broken the law. Or you've broken our law. And so that's why it says, they ask this question so that they might accuse him. And this is their intention. This time, as opposed to in the field, they're before many people, they're asking this question, and their whole goal, again, is to be able to accuse Jesus of breaking the law and discredit His ministry. So they want to accuse Him. Look at verse 11. Here's the defense that Jesus gives. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? So there He argues from their own actions. Now, this is a rhetorical question. The answer would, they would have all said, well, yeah, we're going to get our sheep out. And he's, he's showing them that they have a double standard. See, if it was a sheep, you would do something about it. Because it's a man, you have this double standard. And he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, as we will see in verse 12, his, his conclusion of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, people are worth more than sheep, than animals. We go back to Genesis on this. God created man and woman in His image. The pinnacle of His creation. Not animals. Our dogs, they're not our children. If a dog dies, guess what? You get another dog. They're just animals. People are people created in the image of God and, and are to be adored as such. And so Jesus says, if you would help a sheep, would you not help an animal? I mean, if, you would help a, if you'd help a sheep, would you not help a, a human being? 
And so therefore, because you would, and because people are of more value, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Notice he does not mention healing specifically. He just says it's lawful to do good. It's okay to do good. Now, we could go right back up to verse 7 to when he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. That, that's the point. It's okay to do good. It's actually beneficial to do good, do acts of kindness and mercy and, and help others on the Sabbath day. That's what Jesus is saying here. To God has given the Sabbath as a gift. It is a means of rest and worship and celebration and joy. And that means it's, it's perfectly okay to help people on the Sabbath and to, to, to do good things. And of course, in our case, as New Testament Christians, this would be the Lord's Day. This would be Sunday. Listen to this from our confession. It is the law of nature that in general, a portion of time specified by God should be set apart for the worship of God. So, by His Word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment that obligates everyone in every age, He has specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy. Remember, Sabbath just means to rest, to cease, to stop. To be kept holy to Him from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Jesus, the appointed day was the last day of the week. After the resurrection of Christ, it was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. This day is to be kept to the end of the age as the Christian Sabbath, since the observance of the last day of the week has been abolished. The Sabbath is kept holy to the Lord. And this is how we keep it holy. The Sabbath is kept holy to the Lord when people have first prepared their hearts appropriately and arranged their everyday affairs in advance. That means get ready on Friday night, Saturday. Get ready. You know it's coming. Then they observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their secular employment and recreation. Not only that, but they also fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. And this passage is where we get that in our confession. It's good to do good on the Lord's day. And that's Jesus' verdict. Absolutely, it is okay to do good on the Sabbath. And then verse 13 continues the story. Then He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. Now remember, our biblical historical context for miracles. The miracles of signs and wonders were performed almost always, with a few exceptions, but almost always, to validate the ministry of God's chosen servants. And so... Jesus has just made an assertion. It is good, or it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Well, why do they have to listen to Him? I mean, who are you to tell us what we can and can't do? I mean, we have this other list, and, and now you're telling us something different. What do you have to support this assertion? Which opposes the status quo. And so, He performs a miracle, displaying His power 
Displaying His power that has come down from God. Showing that the verdict that He gives on the Sabbath has been passed down from the giver of the law to these men. Listen to how Mark explains this, this little scene in Mark 3.5. And He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And He stretched it out and His hand was restored. So here we are on the Sabbath, and we're on a day that God has gifted to be a day of worship, of rejoicing, of rest, of celebration, of fellowship with the brothers and sisters, of doing good. And these men are so focused on keeping their own man-made laws that they actually are breaking God's law in their hardness of heart, And they would rather catch Jesus in breaking a law than help this man who is in need. This is true hardness of heart. Their their hardness opposes logic. It doesn't even make sense that they're so hard in their hearts. They're trying to accuse Jesus while at the same time failing at the law themselves. And so Jesus heals this man. What's interesting is that He heals him just with a word. Stretch out your hand. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't break any laws that they had made or God had made. And he displays his power. He validates his word. And the man, it says, is instantly restored. Healthy like the other. His hand is fixed, just like the other hand. A far cry from today's, you know, so-called miracles that are unsubstantiated. You know, my lower back was hurting and now it kind of feels a little bit better. Heals him instantly. But verse 14 starts with the word but, which is to contrast that the good thing that happens, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the ultimate opposition. They're not just questioning. They're not just wondering. They're not just challenging. They have now moved to trying to destroy him. Luke says they were filled with fury. They were angry at Jesus for what He had said and what He had done. And so they went out and conspired. That is, they planned. They they sat down with paper and pencil and and, and tried to make blueprints. How are we going to catch this man? They took counsel with, Mark tells us, the Herodians. Now what's interesting about the Herodians was they were Jewish people who felt like it was a good thing to support the Roman government. They didn't get along with the Pharisees. But they came together because they hated Jesus. So they've conspired. They're sitting down. They're trying to make plans on how to destroy Him. How to kill Him. And this is where it begins. You know, up until this point, there's been some opposition in Matthew's Gospel. But for the most part, we've seen Jesus' early years, His baptism. The Pharisees are there. They're challenged. We saw His Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7. We saw His miracles. Chapters 8 and 9, we're seeing the opposition that Jesus is dealing with now, but up until this point, it's just been kind of arguing, maybe bickering. Now, they are conspiring to destroy Him. This begins the journey to Calvary in Matthew's Gospel. Now here, they can't destroy Him because He hasn't broken any law, so we know that they're leaving to try to make up new tricks. How hard of a heart do you have to have to go out and try to plan a way to catch a man so that you can kill him? And that's their goal, destroy him. 
kill him, do away with him. And it's interesting because their, their strong desire, their urge to get rid of him actually proves his power and his supremacy over him. If he didn't amount to anything, they just say, you know, he's just another nutcase. And that's why they want him dead because of these authority issues. Listen to this from John chapter 11. This is after he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Listen to this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, they're going to leave the support of our government and we'll have no, no government, no, no support from the people, and the Romans will just obliterate us. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. This is John's narration. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus was a threat to power. That's all it was. It was the government was threatened by what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus was doing, and people were, were following Jesus, and they were afraid. They were shivering in their boots because they were afraid the people were going to go after that this man, and this puts us on the pathway to Calvary. So, how do we apply this? How might God, the Holy Spirit, use this story to make us more like Jesus? That's application. Well, the first thing I think is, is the most obvious is, is we can honor the Sabbath command the way Jesus did. And that means enjoy it. Worship, rest, do good, join with the believers. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but, but all the more as you see the day approaching. Get together with believers and worship. You see, when we honor the Sabbath like this, we come together and we worship, we are displaying that we long for the return of Christ, who is our rest. And we saw that at the beginning of, or at the end of chapter 11. He is our rest. And so we're gathering to worship Him. We're longing for His return. Also, when we gather like this, we are receiving a foretaste of heaven. This is what it will be like. The people of God gathered to rest and to worship God, governed by the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Himself. If you don't like this, you're not going to enjoy heaven. And the third thing that we do when we honor the Sabbath is we, we are enjoying the benefits of God's covenant love. We don't have to work. Here's the thing, it's not don't work, it's you don't have to. You get to rest from your labors. So when we, we funnel this down to specific application, there is a standard of living that God requires that He's given us in His law. 
specifically the Ten Commandments, the moral law that our confession says is a perpetual law because it displays the character of God, which never changes. It shows us our sin and our inability, which never changes. And it points us outside of ourselves to a foreign righteousness. So God's law hasn't changed. Jesus upheld the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And so we look at God's law, look at the Ten Commandments, study them, teach them to your children, and learn how to honor God's commands. But, second application, don't slip into legalism over this. This is our tendency. This is the, I've said before, the caricature of the Reformed Christians is that we fill up our heads with knowledge and we think that because we know a lot and because we study a lot that we are better than anybody else. We of all people should be the ones to say, I have no bragging rights. I have nothing to plead. I didn't come to Christ on my own. He came to me. I have nothing to offer. And so when we honor the Sabbath, Let's not leave and say, and look at other people who maybe don't honor the Sabbath or don't do it like we do and say, well, you just need to get right with God like me. Let's not think that because I came to church on Sunday, God is more pleased with me than He would have been if I stayed home. Now, some of you might think, well, why not just stay home? That's an unchristian attitude. And I would pray that God would bring you to repentance and faith. So don't slip into legalism. We cannot merit our salvation. We can't be good enough. Think about this. What it means when we dishonor the Sabbath command, when we fail to observe a Sabbath to God. I've said it already. Most of us, even me, I have an amazing job and I love my job. I feel like God's called me to this. I pray that He lets me do this until my heart stops. But there's some days I'm like, man, I just would really like to not work today. We all have that. If we have a job, there are days when we we don't want to work. And so God gives us one day in seven to rest. And we're still so self-centered and so self-focused that even when we're commanded to rest, we can't take our eyes off of ourselves and our worldly labors and things we have to get finished for one day to worship and serve God. We can't give Him one day. And that is gross idolatry. That's saying, I don't want to worship you, God. I want to worship me and all the stuff I have to complete. So we've all failed at this. We can't earn our salvation and we have to repent. Because we don't have a righteousness of our own, we have to look for another. We have to look for a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. And I'll close with reading that passage that I read from John, the end of it again. It says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. That is, he he wasn't just speaking from his own knowledge, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, he was speaking the words of God, and he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's us. That is the foreigner, the Gentile Christians. Jesus has laid down His life to gather us in. So Jesus has died 
to pay for our idolatry so that all of God's children can be gathered together to one day finally rest and worship Him forever. So the question in closing is this. Will you not trust Jesus? Will you not come to Jesus? Will you not flee your own efforts because they're not good enough and run to Christ? Would would you not take up His yoke and be yoked with Him? Jesus beckons. As we've seen at the end of chapter 11, He beckons sinners. Come and rest. Let's pray. Father, we we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for Your law.